The Athletic. Good morning and welcome to the briefing show from The Athletic. It's Friday the 14th of April. I'm Richard Amofa and here's everything you need to know from the world of football. It was a night of severe pain in the Europa League for Manchester United. But how costly will that late collapse prove to be? It's going to be a really tough task to get through in this tie and I think that would be a massive disappointment to kind of go out to severe side that are 13th in La Liga. More ranks for Cristiano Ronaldo and Al Nasser. With head coach Rudy Garcia sacked, where does this leave Ronaldo's title hopes in Saudi Arabia? I think he's come in and he's realised it's not as easy as he first thought and that has led to some frustrations. It's not going exactly to plan for Ronaldo in Saudi. And are we finally seeing a stand being taken on gambling advertised in football? This is a carefully crafted compromise which will please some people, it won't please others, but I, I wouldn't look at this as a road to everything being completely banned. This is The Briefing Show from The Athletic. We start at Old Trafford and wow, from a sablitzer from Sabitza to a night of sheer frustration for Manchester United. For 84 minutes, United were cruising in their Europa League quarter-final after an early brace from Marcel Sabitza put them into the driving seat. Some even said the tie was done. But after failing to put the game to bed, United contrived to score two late own goals to level the tie. To make matters worse, defender Lissandro Martinez was carried off late on with a bad-looking injury. The extent of his injury is unclear, but someone who United will definitely be without for the second leg is Bruno Fernandes. He'll miss the tie through suspension after picking up a yellow card. At Old Trafford to unpack that 10 minutes of madness at the end and the implications is the Athletics Manchester United correspondent Laurie Whitwell. Firstly Laurie, uh, disappointing result after being 2-0 up for Manchester United but the major concern is Lissandro Martinez. Do we have any updates on his injury? Yeah, it looked really um, alarming the way he went down yeah, without anyone near him, holding his foot and, and he looked really distraught because he came to the touchline. He had to be carried off by two of his Argentina teammates for Sevilla. Um, the stretcher wasn't quite ready for him and then he had his head in his hands as he waited for the stretcher to be laid out and, and he c- carried off and he, he had his face covered the whole way. So you sort of thought this is a really serious injury. Um, you, you sort of thinking, is it Achilles? Because that, that's the kind of uh, angst that I think would, would cause that. Um, but afterwards, Tenag said that is not the area that is um, the issue. Um, he wouldn't go into detail details he, he kind of wanted to wait until the full diagnosis before uh, talking about it but he was specific on it not being the Achilles so I don't know we're sort of left to speculate uh, could it be a metatarsal possibly some kind of uh, fracture in the foot I don't know because it was it looked like a serious thing but then again maybe it's just one of those in the moment situations and actually on reflection it's not as bad as first feared. Mm. And Bruno Fernandes's yellow card means that he'll be suspended for the second leg how will United cope in his absence next week in Seville? Yeah, well, I suppose he played in a deeper role uh, here uh, against Sevilla and um, he has been doing that for the last three games in the Premier League as well. So uh, I guess you, you know, now with Christian Eriksen's back, he came on in the second half, he could slot straight into that role and maybe you still have Marcel Sabitzer uh, uh, pushing on. Although in the second half, I think Eriksen was trying to get him to uh, come a bit deeper and not be so advanced, even though he scored his two goals in that way. So I suppose that they've got players there that can uh, fit into that role, but Bruno Fernandes will be a huge loss because he is... 
you know, so instrumental to a lot of what United do well. And, and the booking was was really harsh. I mean, to, to get booked for handball in those circumstances, I don't know many other referees that would have done that. And uh, how, how costly will this collapse prove to be, Laurie, both in terms of this tie and in building momentum for the rest of the season? Yeah, it really leaves things on a knife edge because, you know, at 2-0 and United looking comfortable, you sort of start planning, OK, they, they could get through in, into the semi-finals here and, and that keeps the momentum going. Now at 2-2 with the injuries and suspension, they're looking like it's going to be a really tough task to get through in this tie. And, and I think that would be a massive disappointment given where the season's been building to, to kind of go out to Sevilla side that are 13th in La Liga would be, uh, you know, not devastating, but it'd be, it'd be close to that because I think every, everybody's kind of getting up for uh, Eric Tenag winning another piece of silverware. So, um, yeah, I mean, listen, if they can get through from this, though, in the difficult situation they're in now, then that would be a huge boost. So I suppose that's the, the flip side of it. But, yeah, it's certainly not going to be as comfortable as it once looked. The winners of the clash between United and Sevilla will face either Juventus or Sporting in the semi-finals. Federico Gatti's goal gives Juventus a 1-0 advantage going into the second leg. In more good news for them, goalkeeper Wojtek Chesney has confirmed he's doing just fine after he had to be substituted in the first half. The Poland international complained of heart palpitations and had to be withdrawn, but after an initial check, thankfully, he appears to be okay. Not even going to get the chance to cross it in, maybe. Referee blows the full-time whistle. And indeed, Alfea get a valuable point at home. And Al Nasser's title challenge dealt a huge blow. Things aren't going too well for Cristiano Ronaldo's Al Nasser in Saudi Arabia. And yesterday, the club sacked head coach Rudy Garcia. It follows a 0-0 draw against Alfea on Sunday. After which... Ronaldo was visibly annoyed, arguing with teammates and opposition players too before storming down the tunnel. Reports in Portugal suggest he was unhappy with the direction Rudy Garcia was taking the side in and perhaps another coach would raise the side's level overall. But for now, Garcia has gone. And for Ronaldo, yes, he scored 11 goals in 10 games and has got two assists since joining Al Nasser in January. But the side have dropped from top spot in the Saudi Pro League and now trail leaders Al Ittihad by three points with seven games remaining. Middle East football expert Wael Jabir joins us from Riyadh to unpack the latest in this intriguing marriage between Ronaldo and Al Nasser. Wael, how was Ronaldo's outburst perceived behind the scenes by teammates and management at Al Nasser? And will there be any further implications? You know what, it's been some something of a consistent pattern since he's arrived in Saudi, I think. Not just him, I think many people expected him to walk into the league, you know, and just be by a long distance the best player in the league. I think he's come in and he's realized it's not as easy as he first thought. And that has led to some frustrations. To add to it as well, in some of the away trips, the fans found it that he gets very easily irritated whenever the fans are chanting Messi's name. So that's been a repeated pattern as well. So I think, yeah, he's finding it a bit more competitive than he's expected. And even within his club and Nasser, I think he's obviously gone in there wanting to be the main man. And he ended up finding himself somewhat in the shadows of Anderson Teleska, who's the league's top scorer, who's the team's best player at the moment. So I think, yeah, it's not gone exactly to plan for Ronaldo in Saudi. Dinko Jelicic has been appointed as interim and his first game will be against Al-Hilal on Tuesday. Firstly, who is he? And how will this news affect that game and their chances of winning the league and maybe a cup in Ronaldo's first season now? 
Yeah, it's an important match uh, to speak about their the new coach. He's the man who's brought in from within the club. He was the under-19s coach at Al-Nasser. So he's very much, you know, the interim coach coming in to just smooth things over, take over. Obviously, their next game is in five days, so they haven't had the time to bring someone in. Uh, whether he stays until the end of the season, that's uh, that's another question. Because obviously, they have seven games in the league. They still have the semifinals of the Cup and potentially a final. So there are, in theory, at least two titles at stake. So whether they stick with him to take them through that period or not, that's something that remains to be seen. The other factor is the Nasser are known to be after a big name in the summer in terms of a coach. So Jose Mourinho's name has been put on the table. A lot of other names are, have been suggested. So obviously, whoever takes the job right now is only going to be maximum until the end of the season. You mentioned Jose Mourinho as a potential target to take over long-term at Al Nasser. Have any other names been mentioned? And will Ronaldo have a say in this? Oh, I think he definitely will have a say in whoever gets appointed. You know, even if things are not going exactly perfectly for him on the pitch, uh, he is still by far the biggest name in the league. And and no matter who joins in the summer, unless it's Messi, Ronaldo will still be the, the biggest name in Saudi Arabia. So I'm sure his opinion is important in everything that goes on in the club. Assistant referee Konstantin Hatsidakis will face no further action over his altercation with Liverpool's Andy Robertson on Sunday. If you missed it, Hatsidakis appeared to elbow Robertson as the pair came together during half-time of Sunday's Premier League game between Liverpool and Arsenal. Hatsidakis apologised to Robertson during a Zoom call between the pair on Thursday and Robertson accepted both that and his explanation of events. The referee was stood down by the PGMOL from this weekend's matches while the investigation took place, but now the FA have ruled that they will not take the matter further. One thing that has been banned, however, are gambling companies sponsoring the front of shirts in the Premier League. Clubs in England's top flight have voted for a landmark ban on this, following a meeting of all 20 clubs on Thursday morning. Eight Premier League sides currently have gambling firms on the front of their shirts, and now have until the start of the 2026-27 campaign to find alternative sponsors. Despite this, anti-gambling groups now say that this measure hasn't gone far enough, with sleeve sponsorships and pitch-side advertising still permitted. With gambling now legal in many US states, it's an increasingly pertinent issue. Gambling has a strong association with football, not just with clubs, but with the media too. Two of the Athletics podcasts are sponsored by gambling firms. So what does this all mean? Here to discuss the implications of this ban is Joey Durso, who's followed this story from the very beginning. Joey, um, is this only the start when it comes to removing bets and advertising? Is it only a matter of time before advertising and hoardings and shirt sleeves is banned too? I don't think that really is the case, no. I think this is a quite carefully crafted compromise, which means that there'll still be a huge amount of gambling in football. It'll still be on the sleeves of shirts. It'll still be on the advertising hoardings, which are arguably even more visible than the front of shirts. You know, if you watch a match on TV, those hoardings are there the whole time, whereas the front of shirts will only be for some of the match. So if you're dimly watching from the corner of a bar or, you know, you're not necessarily watching with all your attention, there'll still be gambling advertising everywhere. And I think, um, you know, this is a carefully crafted compromise um, which will please some people, it won't please others. But I, I wouldn't look at this as a road to everything being completely banned. And if this isn't coming in for three years, so it's a it's a, it's a steady step, but it's not the sort of comprehensive ban that some people have been calling for. 
What clubs are affected and how will this affect them moving forward? I mean, the, these gambling deals are worth up to around £60 million per year. Yeah, so it's eight of the current 20. Um, those clubs are all in what we might call the bottom 14. None, none of the, the the big six clubs we talk about, you know, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Man City, Man United and Tottenham have those sponsors. Um, it tends to be the case that those clubs with more of a global following uh, don't actually like having gambling sponsors. Um, it doesn't play well all around the world, potentially in you know the Middle East. There's a different culture around gambling. So it tends to be the other clubs. And yeah, there's 60 million at the moment. I mean, you have to take that number with a bit of a pinch of salt because it's not like that money would just completely disappear. There'll be replaced by other sponsors who may well be paying less money but those are the clubs that will affect and some argue that you know this will actually help the biggest clubs because it removes some of the money that the uh, challenger clubs if you like um, might be using to bridge the gap how will this affect football as a whole moving forward i mean especially with the uk government expected to announce a review of the gambling laws later this month yeah, so there's still a lot of gambling money in football. You know, if you look at the Skybet um, sponsors, the the EFL Championship, League One and League Two. Um, this is some money being removed from the game, which you could argue is bad in terms of, you know, teams having money to spend on players or teams needing to raise more money from fans. But I think it's part of a long-term trend in which there's a lot of negativity and criticism of the gambling industry, um, not just in the media, but, but from a lot of fans have become more and more uncomfortable with it. So I think it's a sort of direction of travel. I mean, you mentioned the US before. I mean, the US is going in the opposite direction. The US is legalizing gambling in many states. Um, and the UK is kind of a bit of a test case for the world on this. We've had sort of 20 years of very liberal gambling laws, and it's almost like they're rowing back a bit, just as the US is moving in the opposite direction. You're listening to The Briefing Show from The Athletic. It's Friday night and there's no shortage of options if you're planning to stay on the sofa. You can watch Michael Carrick's revitalised Middlesbrough take on Norwich on Sky Sports in the UK or ESPN in the US. There's Schalke vs Hertha Berlin on BT Sport or ESPN in the US. Or there's Spezia vs Lazio on BT or Paramount Plus. Or even Toulouse vs Lyon on BT Sport in the UK or be in sports elsewhere. That's all from us. If you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, make sure you take advantage of our latest offer. Go to theathletic.com forward slash TBS and it's $1.99 a month for your first year. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe. Be sure to give us a review as well. I'm Richard Amofa, your producer was Charlie Jones and The Briefing Show will be back tomorrow. The Athletic.